0: Hi, welcome to Literaturely, a podcast
1: about teaching literature. I'm
0: Margaret Mock. And I'm Paige Wallace. We were just talking about how it feels weird to record, probably for many reasons. It's, I was watching a YouTube video shortly before this. Uh, It was a comedy video, but talking about the pandemic where they were like, (laughs) like Tuesday feels like Friday and Friday feels like April. (laughs) 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 Yeah, so...
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel, like, a little out of practice, because this summer we were recording, like, every week, mm-hmm. and then the semester started, and we had, like, the whole season pretty much mapped out, and now we re- were recording for the first time in a while, and I don't know. I don't know how to, like, conduct myself anymore, <laughs> you know?
0: <laughs> we're being recorded. Um <laughs> well, I'm excited to talk to you again on... Uh, that sounds like we don't talk. Uh, we talk all the time, <laughs> so... <laughs> officially,
1: right? You're excited yeah. to officially, yeah, but
0: officially on the record speaking yeah. <laughs> once again um, <laughs> for, for the historical documents to show. And I'm I'm excited. It feels weird to say I'm excited to talk about our topic today, but I I am um I I think just because it does it is just what's on everyone's mind kind of right now. You can't escape it and when you can't escape a topic, I'd rather address it head on. It's just the uh...
1: Rhetorical situation we're responding to right now, right to get my yeah.
0: class: um, And I think it gives me the illusion of agency um, to be able to try to think of how to respond to it in the ways that I feel comfortable and thinking about how this can work pedagogically. It gives me some. Sense of control, however delusional that sense is, and I—I'll pre- take what I can get in yeah. twenty twenty.
1: <laughs> like that ability to conceptualize the moment we're in uh, feels yeah. like agency, even if it's yeah. delusion, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> From the episode title, they know that we are talking about teaching literature about a pandemic today, and Paige brought up a really good point this week and we were talking about what we would want to address in this episode, which was we all had to address it with our students in March, but the way we addressed it back in March when it was beginning is very different from the terrain we are covering now with with our students' experiences. So um, Paige, I know you've been doing some more work with this, so I kind of want to...
1: Yeah, I mean, well, I guess it's not even work i was just having a conversation with a colleague and and she pointed out um sort of like some of the assignments that were bouncing around back in march about asking students to write about their experience with covid or quarantining or whatever those were could be really good reflective assignments but they also especially now months later could be assignments that are tied up with a lot of like trauma and grief that they're all still processing, even if it's indirect grief, right? Because I think when we're thinking about the pandemic, it's really hard not, for me, not to be overcome with like this idea of like so many lives have been lost. Um, And so being like aware that our student, even if we haven't lost anyone or had anybody that's been very ill, it's likely that we're gonna have a student that has, um, because we're we're still so close to this. And I guess the, the thing I was also thinking about was that when we did our 9-11 episode, mm. we were talking about trauma, but trauma that we have degrees of separation from, like over time. And here in this moment, we don't have those degrees of separation. So I'm sure that this is a question that when people were teaching literature about 9-11 or even post-Katrina literature, right? which is um, you know. J- also traumatic, but like when people were putting these syllabi, these syllabi together, or making plans to teach these classes, and the trauma was more immediate, they probably had to grapple with these same questions. So I guess maybe then um, part of what we could do here is ask ask that question, like, how have you? like, dealt with trauma and grief in the classroom that's really related to the themes you're teaching, um, especially when those those moments are still very much connected to, like, our current, like, moment,
0: right? Does that make sense? Oh, it does, and you're making me think kind of a little bit more deeply about – the the way time is connected to trauma, not just like as in like, oh, that happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago, but like 9-11, it's, it was a single day. Katrina was weeks, but it was also in a specific location. And just thinking about pandemic, there's no escape from the pandemic. It's like that's the, what's horrifying about zombies, right? Like it doesn't matter that zombies are slow, they're going to get you there's no there's nowhere to hide um and so like how do we deal with sustained pervasive trauma and i think there's a lot of links with that like i don't want to correlate it as a one to one but a lot there with you know decades centuries of systemic oppression and genocide and and violence and and again not the same thing but that idea of that pervasive trauma
1: that's yeah uh, yeah I think there is something there and so I'm thinking about how if we had a class on pandemic literature and and this trauma is fresh and very difficult for many people a we've said you'd have to be upfront about your topic so students yeah. that wanted to yeah. opt out they could opt out so this is, would be the kind of class where at the very first week I would send them a, a, a very sort of straightforward email saying like this is what we're going to be talking about while I can provide some trigger warnings and accommodations, if you think this is a topic that you can't deal with, and, and I don't even want to say deal with, but that you can't process right now. Yeah.
0: You're not ready to tackle yeah, a, then, a group.
1: Right. Then this might not be the class for you. So I, that would be part of it. But the other thing is that instead of like an onslaught of book after book after book about a pandemic and, the, and you know, that the scariness of that and the immediacy of it, um, there's some ways of thinking about themes, right? Like time and how the pandemic has made us think differently about time and processing trauma over time or being in this sort of endless loop of trauma over time. um, That I think Mm. you could get some texts that are sort of tangent to that, right? That are like about memory and time and trauma and still kind of put them under the umbrella of this idea of pandemic literature, Maybe
0: not properly. Groundhog's Day as, like, (laughs) trauma of time, (laughs) like.
1: Yeah, Yeah, but I mean, like, how, like, how cool would that be to just even use a couple clips at the very beginning of introducing this theme of time, and then it not just being this onslaught of, like, terrible, terrible, like, you know? Mm
0: -hmm. No, you definitely have to have a balance, because that's something, like, not teaching a pandemic class, but teaching women in lit, when I did it through the lens of motherhood, I had to be really careful of making sure to have positive texts, just so it wasn't drudging through just trauma after trauma and being like, wow, the world is terrible. Like, no, the world is great too. (laughs) Look at this. But it's definitely... Uh, a balance that you'd have to think about when preparing your syllabus and also like you said letting your students know from off off the the bat that yeah this is what we're talking about I don't know if I would teach this class in in a required course
1: yeah no like a this feels like a special topics upper level mm-hmm. sort of class where students have options to drop it and take another elective.
0: Yep. Um, yeah. But I do think like there's potential for, so when researching this, like I was seeing what has already been covered, and it was um, a professor at Princeton whose name now is escaping me was teaching a pandemic. Like class before, <laughs> it was like while wow, this was happening. Which, I found this too when I was researching. Yeah, but anyways, because of the setup of the course, she had. It seems like she had a lot of STEM majors in her course, like mm-hmm. people who wanted to major in or go on to med school, um, or who were just studying biology. And I think that's something that would also be interesting in creating a course like this. You can create it to be meant for primarily English majors, literature majors, and studying. of the craft response to natural or international disaster but you could also think of it as a more open course of open humanities and thinking about well how how would a stem majors benefit from this how would music majors benefit from this how would um, history majors benefit from this, Uh, business majors, etc., and I think there is a lot of potential, as we've seen, because everything is connected, that knowledge doesn't exist in a vacuum or, like, nice compartment, (laughs) so. Yeah, I mean, and, like, there's
1: already a lot of, like, resources out there in terms of, like, medicine and literature, mm -hmm. right, and so you could kind of do it as, like, an offshoot of uh, special topics like that.
0: I think, like, It's also been really interesting for me as someone who studies modernism to see in the beginning all of the essays that were coming out of like, why didn't modernist writers write about their pandemic? And there were a number of modernist scholars who were like, they did. (laughs) It was construed as metaphor. But I have not paid that much attention to the flu of 1918, like specifically. I've seen it pop up. but it is really interesting now to go back to it and see certain things like that I'm interested now in exploring specifically as in pandemic literature. Like firstly, I'm about to go down rabbit holy. So please be free to pull me yeah. back. So one of the things that draws me to modernism in general is the development of the subjective perspective of like, oh, there's not like an objective truth or an objective way to see things or an objective type of person. So how would this sort of person experience this moment from this angle? And the the development of these sort of subjectivities leads to fragmented texts, to texts from unexpected perspectives and really immersing themselves in it. And it got me thinking with all of this that pandemic literature does oftentimes it seems have a wider range of perspectives. I haven't done the numbers on this obviously, but I'm thinking like even with the Decameron, like the fact that it's so many different tales, and then if you so I'd be really interested to go back through this and like why do you get this multitude of perspectives in these in these moments and I don't fully know if that is something that's happening, but it seems like it's happening to me and it seems like maybe it's caught up in this idea of documentation mm-hmm. partly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, I think you're right. Yeah. Like preserving the experience and that the way a pandemic affects society is on so many different levels. So to fully archive it I'm using that favorite word that you have to have the multiple perspectives and do you know what I was just thinking
1: about and I don't know if this would be a good assignment what if you like if you were teaching this class online because you're all home because of the pandemic I'm thinking about like conversations we've had about YouTube and like how your background becomes like your brand and so on and so forth and I'm not asking students to brand themselves per se but like How interesting would it be to sort of think through that idea of multiple perspectives and documenting and using, like, your Zoom space, right? Because we Mm -hmm. can do a a gallery view and see how every single person maybe has some artifacts of, like, how they're coping or how they're documenting or what it is they're doing, right? And bringing that into, like, a single class video or something could be really interesting because um, like we've seen it happening on social media right we had like the craze of baking bread or <laughs> right like all these things that people yeah. are doing individually gardening book clubs like whatever it is and I'm yeah I, that's just me spitballing but then like how does the Decameron, those individual stories uh, those individual perspectives how can students like immerse themselves in that idea of giving and documenting their own experiences. And again, we'd have to be careful with this, Mm -hmm. right? And give like another option for an assignment. So maybe if, to not require them, I think, to do this, but that it could be some sort of additional or bonus or intro kind of thing, like low stakes. It's
0: also interesting what you were saying there because about the Zoom background, like this being kind of a way to get perspective because it was also making me think, that I think part of this perspective building is to show how far reaching the pandemic is, that they're, a lot of times they're coming from different places. Yeah. Um, so it's like that journey, where did you come from? How did you get here? How did the pandemic reach you? And I'm thinking, because you've read Station Eleven as well, um, I don't. I feel like at this point everyone has read Station Eleven because it became Give or take. So prescient. Yeah. But yeah. for those of you who have not read it, highly recommend it. It is a pandemic novel. You might not want to read it right now. I read it a week before shutdowns in March on the plane back from a conference. So, (laughs) but it's, it's so based in mobility, like this idea that a pandemic forces physical mobility and Mm -hmm. you're seeing it now, even with cities and the rent shopping, because people are leaving the city. Like it's uh, that specific type of mobility. And that's what happened in prior pandemics people flee the cities and but thinking about at the same time the pandemic forces a, a stillness so you have forced mobility and forced stillness happening simultaneously and so to go from like the perspectives of in literature in the past of capturing that mobility to how does literature capture stillness because a lot of times that that's the part of literature i hate the most is when it's about stagnation Okay. So
1: I was thinking about uh, the theme of isolation. So this is kind of related to what you're saying about stillness, but thinking specifically about texts that aren't necessarily about pandemics, but are related to themes. Right. And so like Matt Johnson's Pym, very weird, wonderful book uh, that I also highly recommend. It is not about a pandemic, but you've got this character who's an artist who is like isolated in, um, his own sort of bio, biosphere, um, and he's created this world that's completely artificial to survive in, and he's isolated, but a lot of that depends on, like, his ability, like, he he has the money, the resources, all of those things, and so isolation looks really different uh, for that character. I mean, and it fails for him in the end, right? I mean, he has, like, I don't know flowers that smell like Snicker bars or something. So it's very ridiculous, but um, and it fails. But I also feel like maybe this is related in some way to these conversations of isolation. It definitely is and, and like it has all the
0: celebrities that people yes. are getting so upset with for being like we're all in this together, and it's like nope.
1: Yeah, so like <laughs> you know, um, the the Kardashians and their whole like let's have a party, but beforehand give everybody rapid COVID test, and it's just like. So isolation looks a lot different for you guys than it does for us. There are no snicker-flavored flowers <laughs> in my backyard, right? Um, and, and, and I say that, like, also as a person that's privileged enough to not have lost my job, to not to be worried about, like, housing or anything like that. So
0: Yeah, it seems like the pandemic literature that's specifically about pandemics I've seen typically result in the total collapse of society where, like, it entirely levels the playing field. Like, it acts as if there wouldn't be different experiences during a pandemic. It's Mm -hmm. because it's a dystopia. So So do you think this will change how we write about pandemics in the future? I wonder, because I do think there is so much more discussion now about class inequality than there would. And... I'm now, I'm not a medievalist, but one of the things that did always interest me in medieval literature was the plague was what led to the middle class. And it's that middle class are like the squeaky hinges where mm-hmm. they like point to kind of what's wrong because you have enough resources that you can take some risks. Um, right. You can take You know, you have extra resources to create challenge, etc. But you also aren't the top of the top. Where why would you question it? It's great. (laughs) Um, But yeah, like you do. It. I don't think it happened in 1918. Maybe it did. But we focus so much more on how like World War II was the equalizer, not the Spanish influenza. Mm -hmm. Um but definitely the black Plague in 13th century, 14th century, 12th century. Right. It just kept coming and coming, but it it led to the middle class because serfs had rights all of a sudden. You need us more than we need you. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was definitely thinking about that as well when I put the Decameron on my list mm-hmm. of
0: things to chat about. Because it definitely they started talking more about that sort of stuff and that sort of stuff, you know, um, simultaneously we were talking in one of our other groups about censorship and revision. Mm -hmm. And you do also see that with um, medieval literature of like, Hey, take that back. (laughs) They rewrite it. So I think, and I think that's something that would be interesting to think about with, the spread of misinformation and disinformation during a pandemic, um, specifically with online genres, because there's less regulation. We're in a time now, I do think, I don't know how far into the future, but that the internet will be more regulated. There'll be more rules. We're just at the beginning of the biggest communication revolution since the printing press, and we're still figuring it out, but it will one day be figured out. And I think When that time comes, they'll look back at this time and be like, look at what they were doing during the pandemic. Can you believe they were posting this? Mm -hmm. And there will be a lot of grad students being like, whoa, writing my dissertation on this.
1: Yeah, uh, definitely. So tell me, I guess, if you you have on the notes... um, this idea, sorry I'm not being like super organic right now, but I wanted to hear more about your idea about like the scapegoat. So
0: a few things, I have to go back to where my brain was when I was thinking about that exactly. But that there, there seems to be someone who has to be punished in a way during mm-hmm. in, in pandemic literature. Uh, one, you have the who society is going to blame for, for the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So like you see it now, like where it's bounced around to different people, like, oh, it's China's fault. Oh, it's the Democrats' fault. It's a conspiracy. It's a science experiment that there has to be some point of blame for the virus. Mm-hmm. And then on a smaller level, there's individuals that people will blame for endangering the community. Even just thinking about like, obviously we need to trace things to figure out where it's, where it's going. Mm -hmm. But you also have like that, like my parents, they were like, so they were joking about in their neighborhood, like, as it was all beginning, they were like, Oh, everyone's on the lookout for patient zero. Who's going to be patient zero. And and (laughs) like we don't want to be known as patient zero. So my mom was joking in the beginning that they were trying to avoid getting COVID because they didn't want to be known as patient zero for there. Right. And so I know that I was thinking a lot about like the way we, the, the terminology we use for both the illness itself and for the people who get sick. And it's, I think that would be interesting. Like if you wanted to do a multi-genre approach, like bringing in zombie literature and how we talk about zombies and that dehumanization of the infected that we blame. We blame people who get sick. And this wasn't what I was thinking about with the scapegoat, but now I'm spiraling. And I've been thinking for a long time. Joan Didion writes about it in, I think it's A Year of Magical Thinking, that um, modern society has lost the rit- There are rituals to deal with death head on. Like all of our rituals now for dealing with death is about hiding it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't see death as natural, which is sort of bizarre when you get into it. And so we see sickness and death as unnatural and something that should be avoided at all costs. And obviously we should avoid getting sick if we can, but like you can't avoid death for forever, but we see death as a failure. And thinking about that sort of one of the ways that's really stood out to me about the rhetoric right now about the pandemic is that the rhetoric of failure is so tied into it a failure to quarantine, a failure to distribute resources. And even with the rising death toll, who whose failure does it represent? And there's, I've seen a lot of blame attached to people who get sick, which I find like interesting. And I'd want to work through that. And I think zombie literature would actually be a way to do it because it's that dehumanization process of dehumanization and that the deaths aren't natural. Yeah,
1: I I think I would definitely use one of the, like, a issue of Walking Dead for this, but I'd have to re-traumatize myself and figure out which one I'm going to use. Those those comics, like, I stopped reading them because they scared me. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I read so many of them, and then I was just like, why am I doing this? Well, Um, you could even do
0: something, like, um, if you wanted to do, like, a movie, like, Night of the Living Dead, and that would be cool. To, uh, horror movies also scare me so <laughs> yes yeah, so that might be a little hard yeah yeah I wish I had more to say and when I wrote that down I, I was thinking about something specific and I lost it which is a good reminder to myself take more detailed notes Margaret
1: right <laughs> yeah so now yeah. you guys anybody listening knows my secret to like wanting to do things that are like related to pandemic but not necessarily because I like, got like even like World War Z which would be perfect for talking about like the way we've blamed China and so it, like uh, but it, that book scares me a lot um and, <laughs> and I would have to tell my students that guys we're going to talk about this thing that
0: freaks me out a lot. Uh, well the other side of like the scapegoat sorry yeah. Music no. World War Z just to give you the path of my brain Yeah, do it. World War Z reminded me of the movie, which I know is quite different from the book. But they Mm -hmm. had that big feature on Jerusalem being like the last safe place since it's a walled city, which um, the wall doesn't work. Um, But and then that made me think of the opposite of the scapegoat, where um, somebody who's listening to this is going to know exactly the name of the town. I do not. But there's a town in England that is a ghost town that during the pandemic, or not pandemic, during the plague, they got infected with the plague and they made the decision to quarantine themselves, like the entire town, no one Mm -hmm. would leave. And I think it's like two thirds of the people died. Yeah. Um, And thinking about that as well, like I think if you were going to talk about a scapegoat, there's also the sacrificial lamb you need to talk about, but I'd rather make it like Self sacrifice, in terms of like how does sacrifice get portrayed during a pandemic? Because obviously, there's like the enforced sacrifice of like, you all have to do this, we're instilling a curfew, we're doing this, we have to sacrifice for the community. But then there's also the individual decision about what they're willing to sacrifice. Right. And sometimes it's portrayed as stupid. Like that's what we're seeing right now. Sometimes self sacrifice is portrayed as stupid, naive whatever well and like this idea of fear right? like
1: yeah. letting fear dictate uh, your life quote quote but when reality like like this i i think the irony of saying like don't let the pandemic and fear dictate your life is re is really interesting if that's the word i want to use because it's it's like saying like this thing is a, a just a like natural occurrence right like we wouldn't say the same for like it's raining today, don't let that dictate your life. Don't <laughs> take your umbrella and wear your rain boots. And I'm like <laughs> oversimplifying a great deal, but it it feels like a lot of, like that same logic. Uh, yeah. Like, mm, so I would obviously investigate why we think that we can control, like with pure sheer will, uh, the natural world. Um, that we can just wheel away this pandemic by not being fearful of it is a a really
0: interesting thing to do like an eco yeah
1: so so that's kind of how I would want also maybe want to approach this would be using I would use Ursula Heise's book it's a it's a little dated I mean not like that much but sense of place and sense of planet to talk about local global the breakdown of borders and the way you know like this virus isn't contained in a certain by a certain national border or anything like that and the way it's made us think differently maybe about local and global and how pandemic literature like even station 11 there's this idea that the borders have broken down they're being redrawn and not by like a, a sort of overarching national government but by these people who are traveling um, to put on shows, they've got their own sort of way of, I don't know, classifying the regions and Mm -hmm. such. And so I'd be interested in that. And then obviously thinking about these new digital worlds it feels like we're in, right? Like for me, I'm still pretty much isolating and not hanging out with people, not going places. And so a lot of my interactions are happening in digital spaces, way more so than in the past, right? Like we maybe have phone calls and text and whatever, but uh, I do so many Zoom calls now that it's a little bit like, this is a new world kind of. No, I
0: agree. I think there were, with that in mind, you'd have to balance the digital with the traditional in any class about this, simply because the digital has become the real, like this feels like a moment that we'll go back to, Going back to thinking about 9-11, like, that's what I often tell my students is, like, the postmodern moment where the screen was more real than reality because you only got the full sense of what was happening when you could see it on a screen. Like, when you were there, you couldn't see what was happening. It was too big. Right. Um, so the screen became reality. And now it's sort of like a compounding of, <laughs> of that, of the screen becoming our reality. Well, that sounds very dystopian, and I don't mean it in like a necessarily negative way. It's neither good nor bad. It just is.
1: Well, and it's interesting to to compare that to a lot of traditional literature that deals with pandemics, where the digital has been erased. You've lost power. You've lost connection. Um, and that and and our experience has been different. And that's why I think, like, what is a what does a novel, um. And not like a nonfiction text or even a memoir, but what does is, what is a fictional text, a fictional novel about a pandemic look like in the future when we imagine it still happening and, and not being a total breakdown of society in, the, in those traditional ways that we think of it, right? Um, where we no longer have access to media or the internet or anything like that. I, yeah, I'm really interested in that.
0: Well, and I think that would be a great opportunity to talk with your students about fictionalization of historical events where not just like, oh, I want to take artistic license with a specific person, but in terms of being inspired by current events and taking them a step further to see where they could go or to transform them into metaphor. So thinking like, well, even in the future, would we have novels about this moment not not about this moment, responding to this moment that still featured the total society breakdown to show what it's like to not know what's going on. Like, do yeah. we erase communication in these novels and, and media? Because it's totally new information. There's no way to really disseminate it. So it right. feels like we're not getting any news. And I think, I don't know if you like want to talk sort of about themes that you would used to teach a a class about pandemic literature, like different possible approaches, but either way, I was thinking like one would be transformation. Like thinking about a lot of pandemic literature is about that transformation being forged by fire or whatever, so like how is an individual transformed? How is society transformed? And I think that is why you don't see a lot of accuracy because there's something there, even the way people are talking about right now, like what's life gonna be like? after this like
1: yeah are we gonna have winter? movie theaters are movie theaters gone forever like- <laughs> yeah
0: it seems like a time where you can critique society and be like well now we realize this isn't working so this is what we can do and that literature is a really useful way to explore that further of of what what does this al- how does this allow us to rebuild yeah if you press the reset button right yeah um but and- i think future pandemic novels are going to be so much more about Um, economic equality as we talked, but also racial equality Mm -hmm. because that's what we want to rebuild right
1: now. Right. That's what we want to press the reset button on Mm -hmm. so many ways.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But what are some other things that you think you would want to like either base your class around? Like we've talked about, you can do an environmental approach, mm-hmm. the transformation we talked about in the, you could do a modernist <laughs> approach or right. uh,
1: multi-genre approach. That's such a hard question, Margaret. I feel like I've exhausted the sort of things I was thinking about, but we didn't talk about this idea of like non- places. So yeah. in Ursula Heise's book that I mentioned earlier, she talks about I don't know if the exact wording is like non places, but basically she's thinking about places where they're just like uniform, um, like airports or gas stations and they look exactly the same everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about these just off the cuff because like movie theaters are an example, right? Like, and are we resetting those? Because it feels like, in some ways, like obviously airports have a function, um, but I'm not doing a good job here. But I guess, like, thinking about how the we the pandemic makes us reimagine spaces, physical spaces, and I think that that's relevant in some of the texts that we've mentioned. Mm. Um, So, for example, the reset for Station Eleven is that that airport becomes a community, right? Um, And and I think there are other examples. And.
0: No, I think there's something really interesting there, because, like, I don't know if you've seen. I've been getting a lot of commercials that are like, don't you want your local community to still look local? When this is all finished and it's an encouragement yeah. to like go to local restaurants right. local businesses where there's like a rejection of chains happening
1: yes and, and, and or, I, I wasn't super comfortable saying that because i couldn't i wasn't sure if maybe that was in my head because i i wanted to <laughs> um but you know it does feel like that where people are are sort of focusing their energy on the like the lifeblood of a community being actually, like, people, right? Not, like, the corporation and the, that experience, like, it's, like, if you want to save an experience, it's probably not California Dreaming, sorry, but it's probably, like, that local restaurant, you know? And so, like, is there, is this moment part of that reset of, we're, like, making priorities, like, our priorities look different to, for, and, and sort of a rejection of those, like, non-places that, look the same and feel the same and have the same.
0: There's like a declaration of identity happening. And I think that's something maybe that strings everything we've talked about with pandemic literature is that there is this assertion of identity that underscores it all of this is who I am, um, or this is who I will be. Um, and this, and, and then that's sometimes tied to place, or it's tied to community, or it's tied to whatever. And I think maybe that would allow you to do kind of a range of individualized projects with your students in a class like this. Because when you were first talking about the non-place, it was making me think what you were talking about with Station 11, the redrawing of boundaries. And that would be a cool potential final project that students could opt to do is like a mapping of the pandemic so, like, how does a novel either remap it or something like that? You could do, we were talking about before, with, like, something, like, a creative writing project about Zoom and, like, the artifacts that reflect like the... Like, your
1: experience
0: or... Yeah. Your, yeah. Like, your reset or whatever. Um. You could do a business proposal for, like, a post-pandemic store? Like, so what's a need that one of the novels we read reveals about life during a pandemic or post-pandemic? How would we fill that yeah. if you wanted to have a not non-specific literature major project? Right. Yeah, and
1: I'm, I'm all for, like, final projects that are, like, option-based.
0: Yeah, like, I'm thinking, like, how cool would it be for Station Eleven, like, if a student did a, a grant proposal? From the perspective of the conductor for the orchestra yeah like, we need we need more supplies to be able to continue this so um yeah which actually station 11 lends itself really nicely to doing a lot of creative projects where you could break down the skills we want to build in a literature class mm-hmm. uh, typically because you have like the person trying to create a newspaper but also with yep. the intention of newspapers are not only good for community or for documenting current events but they're also a way that we build community because you're all sharing the same knowledge, but also archiving history for future generations. Um, and you could do cool projects with that. Well, and you've got the museum
1: and like, yeah, just like all the things that are bringing that community back are like art based.
0: Yeah. Even thinking like you could do an assignment where doing the the museum, how would they build one for the for one of the other novels you read in that class. What yeah. would the museum look like? Oh, that's a really good idea. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of really cool assignments you could do beyond the traditional literary analysis. Right. Which would allow them still to analyze the text you're reading and think about themes, but also start to connect that, which I think would be one of my, my goals for teaching this sort of class, would be to help students see the connection between literature and the wider world. Because oftentimes they come in with the sense of like, I like reading, I like writing, but this is just for fun. And be like, think about how literature helps us better understand history or better understand ethics, better understand cultural anxieties. Moment, yeah.
1: But yeah. So I think then we kind of had these set of questions. Mm -hmm. um, And I wonder, like, I feel like we should um, like, post these questions when we post our stuff, like, this stuff to Insta, you know? Yeah. But it feels like we've gone through those, but also we'd be willing to hear, like, some other people's questions about how can, like, a pandemic as a lens for reading text, Mm -hmm. um, impact that
0: reading, Yeah, like, what happens? Because a lot of people now have been going back to early 20th century texts and be like, oh, this is actually a novel about disease, about illness, about anxiety. So what happens when we go back and, yeah, there don't necessarily have to be about a pandemic to be about a pandemic. Right,
1: yeah. So, okay, Margaret, tell me your dream course. Mm,
0: My dream course today is... I think probably because we're talking about pandemic literature, I would look, like to look at or teach about young adult dystopias. Yes. Because,
1: because there's so many
0: good pandemic
1: uh, texts from young adult
0: dystopia. Yeah. And I guess this brings us full circle of what we were saying in the beginning that it's the reset button. That I think it is, these novels specifically, you can help, young adults (laughs) see how like what they want to reset the button on like Mm -hmm. what do they care about what do they want to be engaged what topics do they want to engage because dystopian novels are novels that say young people should demand action that young people should demand change that horror happens when young people don't act and so i think it'd be really interesting to look at that not only to talk about those issues but to look at what sort of rhetoric encourages action what sort of rhetoric discourages action um how do people like how do we pinpoint complicity mm-hmm. um what are the ethics of action kind of get a little bit hamlet there yeah, <laughs> But no. i think it'd be fun what about you well i want to say i also think
1: that that would be a really good way of doing the like dealing with pandemic topics in a classroom and also with the forefront of hope mm. um, because I think that that's a big part of most dis dy- young adult dystopian novels, right like the world isn't sort of ending for them it's beginning and beginning yeah. and new, right um and that reset is really dependent on their action, so I think that that would be um,
0: dystopia as rebirth,
1: yeah absolutely um but to answer your question, I want to so. I want to do um, an author study class because I've never done that. Uh, I'm still throwing around some ideas for like what author I would focus on with the only like real standard or not standard, but only real qualification for me would be that I want it to be a woman and I'd want it to be um, an author who has a range of like, working within a range of genres. Um, so off the top of my head, I'm thinking a lot about Louise Eldrick, and I would, I wouldn't focus, I mean, it would be impossible to teach Louise Eldrick and focus on one thing, um, and I don't think that I would, but I think instead I would focus a lot on how the, the themes in her work, um, like how to navigate them in different genres, right? Mm-hmm. So, That's novel versus poem versus um, memoir, like w- whatever, right? So, like how to navigate some of those themes, how they cross over, how they're like how they're presented in the different texts, in, in especially different texts that are different genres.
0: Have you what sort of um, single author classes have you taken in the past? I was
1: thinking about that. Have I taken any single author classes? You were you did you take? I any- took Milton. I took oh, M- Milton in grad school, and I I like that class, and I say that surprisingly because <laughs> I think yeah I was in a class where a lot of people didn't like it, but I like that class. What else? That might be it, Margaret. Mm. I no no just kidding. I also took Toni Morrison, but I did that as like a no. I got credit for that <laughs> class. I took I took that class while I was reading for prelims, so sometimes it doesn't feel like – not. it was a wonderful class. It was a fever but, dream.
0: Huh? It was a fever dream.
1: Yeah, it feels like that a little bit. So I took Morrison, Toni Morrison, and Milton in grad school, but I don't think I ever took an undergrad class that
0: was a single author study. I took a Jane Austen class, and I almost took a Dickens class, but I dropped it. Um, but I, I took a Jane Austen class, and, and that's why I asked, was the goal for that class was to look at the progression of an author? Mm -hmm. And to see how they hone their technique, but also their values and and priorities change over time. I guess like I did that with the Seamus Heaney class and a Yates, there was a Yates and Joyce class, but that was sort of interesting and how it reflects the changing politics of the time. But I I could see there's a lot more that you can do than just growth.
1: Yeah, I don't know if I would approach it that way, but I'm not, I'm not opposed to it. I, I think maybe I just, that doesn't in, in immediately appeal to me.
0: Yeah. One of the things I liked about it, but again, I'm with you, I don't know if I would take the same approach, but as an undergrad, I really liked starting with the beginning and seeing kind of like teen angst in Jane Austen and being like, <laughs> ours, they're just like us. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, Jane Austen's such a good option too, though. Um, And I would, but see, I, yeah, I think I would just be too fangirling. Like, you know, for Jane Austen, I'd be like, don't you guys love this? This is so good. Not that I wouldn't be that way with Louise
0: Eldrick, but I don't know. Well, there's something there about shifting genres that would help negate that. But I also think one of the things I liked too, was it really put, it really emphasized technique in a way because things like when you, for Jane Austen, like when you read Emma, the beginning, that reversal of fortune being removed or whatever, it just stands out so much more where all the other characters are people who start out struggling, struggling quotation marks, but Emma's just like, I have everything. (laughs) I And I feel like when you read it in the context of all her other novels, you see it much more as a strategy than if you read it just with, other authors right. um that you you see much more intention when you deep dive into so I'm saying that I would be very much interested in taking your class in deep diving.
1: Uh thanks. Uh, um you know not right now you wouldn't be because I obviously need to think about it a lot more but
0: it's hard to balance during a pandemic. Yeah. Um
1: yeah understatement <laughs> okay. Okay. So, um, then I think we're pretty much, we're wrapping up, right? Yeah. Um, and we've so been, we've been more choppy this time. I think our listeners want to forgive us because we're getting back in the saddle and next time we'll be
0: less choppy. Or will we? No. Who knows in a pandemic? That's just me being ornery. Um, but I'm glad to be talking <laughs> to you again and I'm really excited to hear from everyone else about what ideas that they'd want to explore through pandemic literature, if pandemic literature is currently a dream class for them, or if they just want to put the whole thing behind them for forever.
1: Yeah, and, you know, also, you can tell us about our, if you have any tips for the dream courses. We'll take them. Yeah. I'll take them. I can't speak for Margaret. I'll take them.
0: No, I'll take them, too. So let us know on Twitter, Literature League 101, or on our Instagram and until next time bye margaret bye